Okay. Well, let's go ahead and get started. There may be others who join us at some point along the way, and these are going to be recorded both in audio and video, uh, so you will be able to uh, access this later if by some uh, bad stroke of providence you get you somehow fall out of the uh, out of the system here. So these will all be available, but uh, you have the advantage of being able to be live, ask questions, make comments, and and the like. So uh, we'll see how this goes, and hopefully this uh, works out for us all. Okay, so we uh, let's go ahead and start with a word of prayer, and then we'll uh, move into the material. Lord, we're grateful for your grace to us, for your goodness. Lord, we thank you that uh, you have, uh, as we look at this problem of sin tonight, Lord, I ask that you would uh, make us keenly aware of the fact that you have made a remedy for sin, and that uh, we are no longer bound by the sin sin that once uh, once held us in its crippling grip. Lord, I ask that you would give us the wisdom to be able to discern uh, what that means for uh, the, the regenerate person, and then also uh, what that means as, as we share the gospel to those who are on, uh, who are outside of the church, Lord, I ask that you give us strength of mind and, uh, and good equipment uh, as we as we work tonight, that we might uh, please you in all that we do and, and learn much from your word in your name, Amen. Okay, I believe we're on page forty in your notes, and we are talking here about the expression of sin. So I'm. I'm going to be reading using my reading glasses, so you guys look a little bit blurry to me tonight. But it lets me see these people and see my notes. So <laughs> it's it's just as well that it's blurry with you out there. But okay, so we, we we were talking about the expressions of sin, and we started off by saying that sin is more than what people do; it's what they are. Okay, and we suggested that sin. Uh, exists in people before they are conscious of it. Uh, they're born in iniquity and sin. Their mother conceived them. Sin is also predicated of man's preconscious nature. Uh, it's part of the nature with which we are born, just as an Ethiopian is born black, just as a leopard is born with spots, and, it, and he's, he's predisposed to be born that way. It's, it's in his genes, Right? So also, we who are born uh, in Adam cannot do good because we are by nature evil. And so it's even before we're conscious of it, uh, we are sinners. So we're first liars, then we lie. We're first thieves, then we steal. We're first perverts, and then we engage in perversions, and, and so on and so forth. We did ask here, as we, uh, uh, as we were uh, finishing up last time, is it possible... For someone to be born with a propensity to specific sins, it's a it's a it's a, it's a major topic these days, uh, largely because of the question of homosexuality. Is it possible for someone to be born that way? And at the end of the day, we said theologically, we think it's possible. There's no reason why it couldn't be that way. Um, we also suggested that. Ultimately, it didn't matter. So even though we don't know uh, whether a person is born with a propensity or a proclivity to specific sins, it ultimately doesn't matter. Uh, we're all born with a bent to sin, and that does not exonerate us, and that's the issue. Okay, uh, We might pity someone who is born a certain way. We might pity someone who is held captive to a specific kind of sin, 
but that doesn't excuse them. Okay, and so uh, the advice we must always give to someone who is a sinner is to change his ways. He must stop sinning. Okay, and so that's and that's the uh, and that's the issue at hand. So it brings us into new material here tonight, number three. Sin is predicated of our unconscious nature. And I make this statement here. In fact, uh, I was just talking to my son about this, about uh, uh, about the possibility of sinning unintentionally or even sinning in one's dreams. Uh, so one is culpable even for sins that you don't even know you're committing, right? I mean, you're familiar with that in the in this big bad world in which we live, right? You, you're going down the freeway and there don't seem to be an, enough speed limit signs. You're not sure exactly what you're supposed to be doing. And so rather than slowing down to the what you, you know, the lowest possible speed, you you, you, you accelerate up to the highest possible speed uh, that, that, that it might be. And if you're pulled over by a police officer, you might claim, I didn't know, but that does not mean you're no longer culpable, right? You're not you're not liable to punishment, and he might give you a fine. He might not. He might be generous to you, but uh, but uh, but it's possible then to sin unintentionally, ignorantly. I didn't. I just didn't know that was a sin. You know, I, I'm you're, sometimes you're surprised surprised when someone who's a new believer freely admits to committing a sin, and you and and you're like, oh, oh wait a minute, that's that's a sin, and it's like, huh, I didn't know that. And and doesn't mean it wasn't a sin. Uh, perhaps it would be punished in a in a lesser way, but it's still sin. Uh, or if you sin sometimes without nefarious intent, right? We tell lies sometimes, and we do so because we want to spare someone, for instance, rather than telling them the bold, blunt truth that will perhaps hurt their feelings. Uh, we we skirt the issue. We tell a, a white lie, as you sometimes say. Um, in order to, in order to avoid that, it, it, yeah, it, that doesn't mean it's not a sin, okay? And so we find that the scriptures are filled with references to these kinds of sins. Uh, David says, "Acquit me of hidden faults." Okay, so, and we all have them, right? Because we're self-deceived. We don't realize, for instance, that we're proud people. You know, this is probably one that's sort of stands out here. We. Proud people often don't know they're proud. Okay, doesn't mean they're not guilty of the sin, uh, but uh, but but they're hidden to us at least, and perhaps to others. Atonement was necessary in Ezekiel forty-five twenty for unintentional sins and for sins done in ignorance. And in fact, we find in the in the uh, in the Levitical code that there was a. There was a there, there were there were punishments meted out for crimes done in ignorance. Usually, they were of a lesser level. Nonetheless, they weren't overlooked. So, Luke twelve, the one who does not know it and commits deeds worthy of flogging will receive but few lashes. Okay, so if you didn't know it was wrong and you did it, you'll get some lashes. Not you'll still get some. But you won't get as many as the one who did so intentionally. Now, it's important here to recognize that just because that sins are done unintentionally, ignorantly, or without nefarious intent, does not mean that we are not guilty of them. In fact, 
this is one of the errors of perfectionist theology. Charles Wesley, Charles Finney, both connected culpability, that is liability to punishment, with sins committed consciously and intentionally. In fact, Wesley says that once you are perfected, so you reach that, that state of perfection that we, we spoke about earlier here, if, you, if they reach that state of perfection, they still might commit unintentional sins. But those are overlooked. You can still retain your perfection if you commit unintentional sins. But this is clearly incorrect. Uh, there's another question here that sometimes comes up. Are we culpable for sins that we commit in our dreams? You may say, I just have no control over what happens in my dreams. I'd like to think I would never do X, Y, or Z. You know, sometimes you have a dream and they're very, they're, it's very troubling because you end up doing something that is just you know, scandalous. It's, it's wicked, very evil. And you commit this sin and you wake up troubled and you, and you say, would I do that? Is it possible that I could could do something like that? Well, sins committed in dreams are sins committed in the mind. And oftentimes they are the fruit of conscious thought. You know, uh, sometimes we act out our fantasies in dreams that we would never do in real life, and perhaps they can be sometimes. You know, as they say, a dream is the window into one's soul. Sometimes that may be true, you know. There's a sense in which our dreams may tell us, give us a, give us a sense of how self-deceived that we are. There's little reason to excuse, even if such sins in the life, uh, excuse such sins in the life of the believer. I don't know if you ever, you can, you can holler in and, and object here at this point, but it's hard to know who else would be responsible for those sins, if not you. Okay. Sin is also predicated of the heart. Jeremiah seventeen nine says the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked beyond cure. And we talk about people, he has a good heart. Well, unless he's a believer, no, he doesn't. He doesn't have a good heart. Matthew 15 tells us this as well. The things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and they defile you from, from within, not from without. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, slanders. Again, we, this the statement we made earlier. You are first a sinner and then you sin. Uh, it's, it's what you are that then reflects in how you act. Sin is predicated of the thoughts as well. Um, uh, The sins of coveting, hatred, lust. Okay, and uh, here's 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 another thing that's sometimes raised. Well, you know, I have these evil sentiments in my mind, but I never act on them, and that makes it okay. Okay. You, 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 uh, perhaps you're you're familiar with the idea of a, of, of celibate homosexuality. Okay, I'm a homosexual, but I never act on it, and so I'm okay. Or, you know, I I I, I, I might watch some some videos I shouldn't watch, but I I never actually engage in adultery, and so that's okay. And whether we would actually say that out loud, we somehow. Def- deceive ourselves into thinking that, right? Okay? And the fact is, 
sin is predicated of the thoughts. The sins that are in the mind are as wicked as the sins that are committed. Okay? In fact, if you look at Paul's sins, sin lists, oftentimes uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, the sins on that list are sins of the mind. You know, envy, greed, you know, uh, th- things, things of that nature. These, these, are, these, are, these are the sins that make his, his, his famous sin lists. Sin is also predicated of failures of the mind. Failures in intention and motivation. Thanklessness. Ingratitude. is the first sin, right? We, we, we mentioned that a couple of times ago, Romans, Romans 1. What is that first sin in the sequence of Romans 1? They, they did not acknowledge God as God, were not thankful, and so their hearts were hardened and they started committing sins. And then God gave them over to greater and greater sins. Uh, and what's the first what's the first sin on the list? Thanklessness. They didn't thank him. They, they were ungrateful to this God who, who made it. It's the first in the train of sin that men can commit. In fact, we find in Romans 14, whatever is not of faith is sin. In fact, if you if you look at 1 Corinthians 10. Uh, 31, which is a similar, a context similar, not identical, but similar to Romans chapter 14. We discover here that if someone commits, someone can commit a sin by eating or drinking, not to the glory of God, right? and, And it's exactly the same kind of context here. If you are eating, but not eating in faith, your eating is sin. If you are drinking, and your drinking is not of faith, it is sin. Whatever is not of faith is sin. And it's, it's actually a, kind of a, an interesting uh, argument that takes place in, in Romans chapter 14 here. We, we talked about the conscience a few weeks ago, right? And, and Paul is saying there are some people that are in the church that have consciences that are more strict than the scriptures demand, you know? And, and apparently the... Uh, the uh, the situation here were, was people who were thinking it was wrong to eat meat. Uh, there are any number of reasons why this might be true. Perhaps uh, perhaps they had been in, in, uh, steeped in pagan idolatry. Perhaps they're Jews who were engaged in certain fasting rituals. And even though God had said to Peter in Acts chapter nine, here arise, Peter, kill, eat. He says no, and God says yes. Even so, there are some who have consciences that say, I just I just can't bring myself to do it. And so what does God actually say? Well, if your conscience says it's wrong, and you do it, then to you it is sin, because whatever is not of faith is sin. That's that's the that's the, uh, the entirety of that that context there. So uh, anything that I do that is not based in faith, the intention, the motivation is evil, is wrong. In fact, uh, I think I have here somewhere a passage in uh, Proverbs that says, the plowing of the wicked is sin. Yeah, I can't find it here. I thought I, I thought I had it listed here, but uh, the plowing of the wicked is sin. You say, well, that's weird. How can a farmer going out to plow a field possibly be sinful? I mean, it's, it's of all things, a very neutral thing. 
uh, if if not neutral, good. And it's good for a farmer to be out there working, planting food, and harvesting it. And yet, we discover that if what that farmer is doing is ill-motivated, it's not done for the glory of God, even that is sin. And in fact, we find uh, Matthew 5 is a whole whole, you know, a, a whole series of sins that take place in the mind that are not uh, uh, that are not sourced in proper mo- motivation. Okay, and I think this is something that can be helpful to us when we're giving the gospel. And I'm, I'm sure all of you are engaged at some level in trying to share your faith with uh, people that you know. And uh, one of the first things that you have to do is establish the fact that they're a sinner. They you have to establish a need. Uh, they have to. There have. They have to come to a realization that, in fact, they are sinners. And uh, sometimes we we perhaps uh, get ourselves, uh, you know, we, we get ourselves in a corner when we say, "Have you ever murdered someone?" And they say, "No, I've never done that. No, I've not sinned." <laughs> and you you really can start with some much more basic sins that will will all persons who are honest. We'll have to admit, yeah, I, I haven't done that. You know, so it's not so much the sins of action, lying, cheating, stealing, disobeying, but what they are and what they think and what they don't do. Okay, So do you love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and always do that? Well, even even the most callous of of. of, of Persons who, who who somehow imagine themselves to be free from any need of redemption is not going to admit. Yeah, I, I always love the Lord my God with all my heart and soul and mind. Okay, and I think we if we give a more complete picture of sin that includes not only sins but also sin and sinfulness, uh, we can we can actually get a good sense of what sin is. It is expressed, though, in man's actions. So it starts in the mind, but it then spills out into man's actions. That sin exists in the mind prior to the commission of acts of sin does not mean that deliberate sinful acts are equal to sins of the mind. Okay, When, when you take a sin that is only in the mind and then act upon that thought and actually uh, put it into action, there is, there is a step up or perhaps I should say a step down in the sin that you are doing. So and envy is a sin. Greed is a sin. But if envy and greed lead you then to steal, you have committed yet another sin and, in fact, a worse sin. Okay, You've taken it the next step. You've taken it from the mind and brought it into action. Okay? And sins of the mind graduate to sins of the flesh that are worse than sins that remain in the mind. So there is a sense in which we could say that the the homosexual who remains celibate is better than the one who actually acts upon his inclination. Uh, but uh, both of them still are guilty of sin. Okay. Um, question here that's sometimes asked: I thought all sins were equal. And there's a sense in which that's true. Any one sin is capable of damning us, right? Uh, the, the, the very first sin, no matter how small, 
or how large it happens to have been, was enough to damn you to hell. Okay? So in that sense, they are all equally damning. Nonetheless, I don't think that that necessarily means that all sins are equal in every possible way. Why do I say that? Well, firstly, certain sins are punished more severely under the law than others, which indicates that some sins are worse than others. Okay, So if, if, if one sin is punished by a fine and another is punished capitally, the one that was punished capitally was a worse sin in God's moral order. The fact that Jesus says to the folks in uh, Capernaum that it will be better for them in the day of judgment than it will be for those who are in Tyre and Sidon indicates that some sins are worse than others. Okay, So these people who were, who were in Capernaum had, had received the greatest possible revelation that any person could receive. They had seen our Lord Christ. He had, he had, he had, he had, he had done miracle after miracle in their midst, and yet they still rejected him. And God says, it's going to be worse for you because of the sins you committed just now than it will for those horrible folks and Sodom and Gomorrah, who were engaged in, by all accounts, very advanced sins. And yet, these folks in Capernaum are committing a worse sin. And so, there's a sense in which we may be surprised uh, in the last days which sins that God finds uh, the, uh, to, to be the, 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 the extreme, the severe sins, and which ones uh, he finds uh, less problematic. Uh, we also find that common or natural sins graduate to heinous and unnatural sins. Okay, and again, we, we talked about here the fact that, you know, uh, it, the, 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 the unnaturality here is not so much biological, but rather uh, the purpose of mankind you know the, the the dominion mandate says that the purpose, one of the functions of mankind, one of the expectations that God has of people, is that they be fruitful and multiply. There are a set of natural sins that actually contribute to the dominion mandate. Right there, there are a number of sins that you can commit, that men can commit with women, that actually in a way, fulfill this dominion mandate. You're fruitful. You multiply. Okay? But what happens then is that these natural sins graduate to unnatural sins. That is, engaging in the kinds of relationships, sexual relationships, that cannot result in children. Okay? And so, so, so this, is, this is unnatural, God says. And again, it, the, the point is not biological unnaturality but rather the the, 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 the function of mankind uh, in in the world it does not contribute in any sense uh, to the, the the natural order I say here I, I sort of summarize here we might be surprised in the last day what sins that God deems to be the worst um, but it cannot be credibly de denied that some sins are in fact worse 
than others. Thoughts on that? And if you have a question, just unmute yourself and uh, holler out. We can ask the question and answer it. Finally here, uh, we find that uh, um, sin includes what man does in violation of the law. First John says, all sin is lawlessness. And by law here, he means more than just the written codes discoverable in the scriptures. The Mosaic and other written law codes give us thorough propositional material that can't be distorted through perversion and deception. Nonetheless, Paul says that there is a law by which sin is imputed long before the Mosaic law was codified, right? The person who does not have the law is going to be judged as though not having the law, he says. Romans 2.15 So the moral law of God's holiness is greater than the Mosaic law and includes the law of God written upon our hearts. And we're going to be held accountable for violations of all of these laws. The laws that are written down for us in the scriptures, uh, the laws that are written down upon the table of our hearts. Uh, we're going to be held accountable for all of them. Uh, Strong says the following about law. It's not arbitrary. It's based on God's constitutional nature. So there's no law that's out there, no rule, natural or canonized in Scripture that is just random or arbitrary. Uh, there's always some connection to God's constitutional nature. It is fixed and immutable, this law of God, not based on divine whim or reaction to some unexpected exigency. Okay, So God does not change. God does not add laws because of some development in the world. Okay, God's law is fixed. It's not merely negative, he says, telling us what we must not do, but it's also positive. It tells us what we must do, and we sin when we don't do what the law tells us we must do. It's addressed to the whole of man, body and spirit, thoughts and actions, and we find Paul and Moses alike toggling with ease between these. You know, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. Okay, and you know, those, those first three, you know, okay, got it, got it, got it, covet, okay? And uh, we find that the whole of man, not only your body and what you do physically and materially, but what you do in your mind. It's not published in full in any one place, which can be frustrating to us, right? We, we'd like to say, okay, just give me the rules all in one list and I'll keep them. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, or for, or for God's purposes, he does not give us all of these rules in any one place. And then finally, it's not limited by man's consciousness of it. Man is responsible to the law, whether or not he even knows it's there. Okay? So sin includes what man does in violation of God's law and also what man fails to do in violation of God's law. First uh, Samuel 12.23, David Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray. Okay? It's a sin to not pray. James 4.15 Therefore the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Okay? So sin is, includes what man does in violation of God's law and what man does not do 
in violation of God's law. So it's a rather comprehensive thing, and uh, hopefully you're you're getting a sense here of how widespread and deep-seated sin goes. It doesn't. There's no one who is not touched by it. Even the best of us are sinners. Okay. Question then now comes up to the origin of sin in the universe. Now, the question here is twofold. One is how it happened. The second is why it happened. They're both difficult questions, okay? Uh, because, uh, you know, we, we, we wonder how it is that God, who is holy, can possibly have a universe in which sin exists. Um, and we get some some sense of that from what we read in the scriptures. But the bigger question, perhaps the harder question, and the one for which we do not get a complete answer in the scriptures, right, is why God did this. I mean, we, 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 we well, sometimes God gives explanations for specific sins here and there in the Bible. But he never gives us a blanket explanation as to why he allowed sin in his universe in the first place. In fact, I'll go further. Why God ordained sin in this universe. Now, some will recoil a little bit at that word, but but realize that God is the sovereign of his universe. If he wanted a universe without sin, he would have gotten it. And so by virtue of the fact that we live in a sin, a world in which sin is, can somehow, at some level, be traced to the divine design. And so we're in some senses asking why this holy God allowed sin into his universe. Okay, so that's the second question. But before we get there, uh, we'll ask where the sin came from. And this can be almost as troubling as the uh, second question. So fasten your seatbelts. Uh, <laughs> there's an occasion about, uh, oh, about 15 years ago now, I was teaching this material in a church, and uh, there was a, I, I was going through this sequence here, which was actually drawn almost word for word out of Dr. McCune's notes, and I was working through it, and, and a fellow jumped up out of the seat and said, he's a Calvinist! Everybody leave! He goes down the, he goes up the backyard, back, there's the center aisle of the, uh, of the church, and he's trying to wave people in, uh, to follow him out the door. Um, but, uh, hopefully you're not gonna do that, or if you do it, you'll do it a little bit more subtly than that. Um, just, just sort of, just turn your computer off here, and, and, and I'll know what happened. Okay. <laughs> okay, but let's, let's see, where does sin come from? Well, at the most, at the very most basic level, we find that the origin of sin in individual persons is their sinful hearts. They're born this way. Where does sin come from? You know, why does my sweet little grandson, who doesn't seem like he ever does anything wrong, and yet, yeah, there's times, even though he's only a month or six, some, some six, six weeks old or something, something like that. Uh, I'm grandpa. I don't, I'm not supposed to know that. Um, there's times where he just gets ticked because he's not getting what he wants and he's unable to communicate and he just sort of sort of loses it. And you say, well, why did he do that? Well, because he's a sinner. That's the fact of things. In fact, we find this in Scripture from within, from out of the heart of men. 
proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these evil things proceed from within and defile the man from within. So you're not corrupted from without. Now, there's certainly occasions in which you are corrupted further from without, but that's not where your first corruption lies. Your first corruption is internal. James 1 says something similar. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by some external source, and that's that external source is culpable for my sin. I am tempted by God. Because God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Okay? God is not actively engaged in tempting anyone to sin. Each one, instead, is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lusts. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is accomplished, brings forth death. Les Olala calls this the LSD trip, right? Lust, sin, death, right? And it's always that sequence. Now, I say, again, there are admittedly inducements to sin from without. Satan can tempt us. Peers around us can tempt us to do sins uh, that uh, we might not otherwise do. But all these interact at some level with something inside of me. Okay, My sin nature uh, resonates with what that tempter says. Yeah, that's a good idea. So we can never, never ultimately blame anyone else for our sins other than ourselves. Uh, so you remember, you know, the devil made me do it. Well, yes and no. The, you know, the, the devil does, in fact, sort of, you know, put his thumb down and push hard and, and make, make sin look even more irresistible than it did naturally. But the fact is, it's you who wanted to sin. And you're the one who's responsible. Satan may share in some sense some of the culpability, but there's never a sense in which the culpability is ever, you're never released from it yourself. Because sin comes from within. Okay, So that's the first level. So that, where does sin come from? It comes from, from my sinful heart. But then the question is, how did it get into my sinful heart? So that's the next step in, in the sequence here. Well, the origin of sin in the human heart is Adam. And we find this to be true in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, death reigned. From Adam until Moses, even those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, so even people who were doing, you know, making up their own sins, sins that Adam had never even conceived. And by the transgression of this one man, Adam, who was the prototype for all sins to follow, judgment arose, resulting in condemnation. So by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one. Through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men. Through one man's disobedience, Many were made sinners. Now, we're going to spend a little bit of time in, in a bit, probably next week, uh, talking about uh, different theories as to why sin comes. Is it something that we inherit? Is it something that's imputed? How is it that sin, that sin comes from us to Adam? How is that fair? How is that just? 
that God would make us sinners uh, and make us culpable for sin and, and, and born sinners based on someone else. And that, that raises some questions, and we're going to try to answer them. But for now, all we need to notice is that this one man is responsible for sin in the entire human race. That's where it comes from. So because of Adam, all persons born in his lineage and likeness have a sin nature and commit sins. Okay? Did I see a question here? Usually when the screens switch, it means somebody was wanting to ask a question, but apparently not this time. Okay? So, then the next question in our sequence, okay? First sin is in in me. That's where the sin, my sin's origin is. Where did, how did it get to me? It got to me from Adam. Now the next question is, how did Adam get sin? Well, the direct origin of sin into the universe is the sin of Satan. And we see this because we, we discover he is a liar and the father of lies. So he's the author of sin. He's, he, is, he is sin's primary author in, in a creaturely sense. Um, and 1 John 3, 8 says, the devil has sinned from the beginning. So uh, the very first act of sin is actually not Adam's per se, uh, but actually Satan and his pride, uh, by which he tried to usurp the authority that God had and tried to sort of finagle God's creation into something other that God had intended. But then the next question, and this is probably the hardest of the questions, is, okay, so why did Satan sin? Okay, now we, we get to the last day of creation, and the summary is what? And God looked upon all that he had made, and he actually adds a, an adverb. And behold, it was very good. Okay, up till this point, it's been good, it's been good, it's good. Now it's very good. So by the time we get to day six, and we find that God created heaven and earth and everything in them in six days, Exodus twenty eleven tells us. So, and it was, and the summary is that it is very good. So the question is, how is it that it became very bad? Okay, and I say here, the decretal origin of sin. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be careful with that word here the decretal order of sin, that is, there's a sense in which God stands as sin's brainchild. That is, he's the one who conceived of the idea for his purposes in order to bring greatest glory to himself. And so it was his idea, it was part of his decree, that sin enters into the world. So the decretal origin of sin is the will of God. Now we, we want, must be careful here. We're not saying that he is the uh, the culpable cause of sin. Uh, we found out earlier tonight even, right, that, that God does not tempt any man to sin. Uh, and so so it's, it's not that God caused sin or tempts man to sin or coerces men to sin. Nonetheless, I think we can safely say that he decreed man's sin. In fact, I, I, I'm hesitant even to use the word permit at times. Sometimes I do. You know, I sometimes will say that God permitted sin. And, and the reason we do that is because we really want to, you know, defend God. 
it's called a theodicy, right? A defense of God. We don't want to suggest in any sense that God is somehow responsible or culpable or, or, or blameworthy for the sins that are committed. And so sometimes we, we back off and say that God permitted sin, uh, which, you know, it's, it's got a, it's, it's got a long rich history, that, that term, uh, in, 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 in Christian theology. At the same time, I think sometimes when we when you use that word, you get the sense that God is here in his world, everything's happy, and then there's outside of God some nefarious force that's not created by him, it's just out there, that's sort of intruded, and God sort of permitted that to happen. And that's not the way it was. You know, what whatever was the force that that culminated in that first sin is something under the control and sovereign direction of God himself. Okay, It's not something that he simply, he, he just sort of steps by and, and something independent of him sort of sneaks in. That's not the way it was. We know this, firstly, because, in this general sense, Ephesians 1, that God works all things. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, uh, run that past me again. Was, that a que- was there a question there? No. Okay. Okay, sorry. We know, we know this firstly because God has decreed everything, right? Ephesians 1.11. God works all things after the counsel of his own will. So there's nothing that ever happens and ever has happened in the universe that stands outside the decretal will of God. Now, there are things that stand outside of his moral will, things that people do that they oughtn't do, but there's a sense in which the sovereign will of God is fixed, and all things in the universe happen because God decreed it that way. But we get some specifics. Lamentations 3.38 from the mouth of the Most High go both good and ill. In fact, some of your translations actually say good and evil. Uh, and and, and, and uh, some of your translators cringe putting that down. So it'll, it'll be ill, or sometimes calamity is the word that, that shows up in your translations. Because we don't want to say that evil, in any sense, goes out of the mouth of God. And of course, it doesn't mean that God is saying evil things. But rather, God has decreed all that will occur, even the evil things. And we wouldn't want it any other way, right? We wouldn't want some sort of rogue idea of sinfulness sort of loose and just running about in God's creation outside of his control. There's a controlled entry of sin into the universe that God oversees. Proverbs 16.4, the Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. And so we, we find here passages that indicate that even evil things that happen in the universe ultimately occur because they have been decreed by God. Now, we want to make some qualifications. God is not the direct cause of sin. We know this because God cannot look upon sin uh, with favor, He never tempts any man to sin. Let no man say when he is tempted, I've been tempted by God. It just doesn't happen that way. It's inaccurate to speak of 
God as sin's creator or as coercing men to sin. Nonetheless, it is accurate to say that God created free agents capable of sin and decreed further that they would sin. It's not as though he just created free creatures and said, I wonder what they're going to do. He knew because he had decreed it. Again, many permit, uh, uh, prefer to use the word permitted as part of a theodicy that insulates him from culpability, and I appreciate that, but this is not necessary, and sometimes can hint of contingency and openness in the universe, that there exist in the universe forces outside of God to which he makes concessions. The introduction of sin was part of God's eternal decree to bring him the greatest possible glory, and it did not take him in any sense by surprise. Okay? Questions up till this point. Okay, and I know that last one's a little bit harder to swallow. Uh, but the alternatives are far worse, right? That there is some independent force outside of God that might eventually overwhelm uh, what God is intending to do. Now, that's not the case. Sin made a controlled entrance into the world controlled by God himself. He facilitated it. He managed it. And he and he and he introduced it into the world for his purposes. Okay, questions? Okay. Next question on our list is: What are those purposes? Okay, if God decreed the entrance of sin into His universe for His purposes, the next question we want to know is what that purpose is. Why is it? that God thought that this was a good idea. Okay, so why does a holy God tolerate sin in his universe? This is a question that's been bandied about, of course, for, for many, many years. Really, it goes almost all the way back to the very beginning of time. But David Hume sums up the problem of evil this way in his dialogues concerning natural religion. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? then he is impotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent, evil. Is he both able and willing? Then whence is evil. Okay, so he basically gives uh, two options here. He says either God is not willing, God is not able to prevent evil, which means he's not all-powerful, or he is able, but he lets it happen anyway, which for Hume means that he's evil. He's bad. He lets sin into the universe when he could have prevented it. Therefore, he must be a bad God, fundamentally. And he concludes that if God is both able and willing, then there is no possibility that sin could ever have entered into the universe. Now, whatever question we, whatever answer we come up to with tonight, it's going to be fraught with tensions. And so I, I ask you to go easy on me and on your classmates as we talk about this because it's, it's a hard question to, to answer. But I, I think we can, we, can, we can lay out some parameters right up front. We, with, can, we can certainly say that Hume has given us a false dilemma. God is both omnipotent and he is benevolent. Whatever solution you come up with to the problem of evil 
can involve neither the denial of God's sovereign, omnipotent, nor a denial of his benevolent goodness. Those, 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 are, those, are, those are fixed. God is this way, and whatever answer you come up with cannot somehow cast some sort of aspersions on one of those things. God is sovereign, God is omnipotent, God is good, God is benevolent. And yet, sin is in the universe. Let's look here at some of the options that have been raised over the years. I'll start here with Arminianism, open theism, and process theism. Perhaps I need to introduce these just a little bit more than just throwing those words out there, because for some of you, perhaps those are just words on a page. They mean nothing to you. Okay? Uh, the idea of Arminianism is that God does not actually actively decrease in. Instead, he stands at the beginning of time, looks down the corridors of time, sees what is going to happen, and makes his decree based on what he sees in the future will happen. Okay, So this, this uh, exonerates him from any guilt because he didn't actually decree at first. It happened, and he saw it. He didn't actually participate in any sense in the sin. He just looks down the corridors of time and sees that his free creatures actually commit the sins. Now, for that reason, in, the, in an Arminian theology, God knows sin is going to happen, but he knows sin is going to happen because he saw it, not because he's a creator. Okay, so that's Arminianism. Open theism and process theism take the next step. Okay, uh, open theism says that God is an open God. He's not sure what's going to happen. Okay, not only has he not decreed all that will occur, he cannot even look penetrate the corridors of time and look down and find out what is going to happen. He's as much in the dark about what's going to happen as you and I are. Now, God, being incredibly smart can stay ahead of his creatures because he can figure out what they're going to do even before they do it. And so God ends up being, and this is the word that is used within open theism, God is omnicompetent. Okay? He's not omnipotent per se, that he can do anything, but he can manage any problem that, that happens. And he can foresee it, and he can, and he can get ahead of it, and he can sort of steer it in such a way that his eternal purposes are fulfilled. So that's open theism. And so these two groups here, Arminianism and open theism, argue that sin is a necessary consequence of God's love. In his benevolence, he allows man to be wholly free and for that reason then becomes vulnerable. He also is omnipotent in that he demonstrates the ultimate power to limit his own power in the interests of another. So you say, well, if God is not impotent and the open theist, au contraire. God is so omnipotent that he can limit his own omnipotence. Which is something of a paradox here, right? God is so omnipotent that he can cease being omnipotent. Well, in that case, he no longer is what he is. So God cannot violate his own nature and character uh, and, and become something other than he is. So this really is a foolish idea. So God is omnipotent, 
And further, he is love, but that does not mean that because of his love, he is vulnerable uh, to not knowing what's going to happen next. This view flies in the face of a great many texts that, can te- that teach that God is sovereign in all things. Okay? You know, God, look, God looks at the face of the earth and no one can stay his hand. No one can say, what are you doing? He, he, he is in sovereign control of the entire universe. I mean, this is, this is a theme that's just rampant in the Old Testament. We've already gone over it. We can, uh, I'm not going to look up every one of these verses, but uh, think particularly of Romans 9.20. Uh, this is one of the more, uh, more difficult passages relative to this question that you can come up with. Uh, because in uh, Romans 9.20, there's this question that's asked uh, by, uh, by an unnamed interlocutor here, who says, one of you says to me, why does God blame us who resists his will? So the, the argument is, how can we be blamed for doing sin if, in fact, God made us this way? And the answer is this, but who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me this way? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? What if God, okay, and here's here's where it becomes interesting. What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience objects of his wrath, that are prepared for destruction. What if God had a bigger goal in mind than any of you could possibly have conceived, and part of that goal was to demonstrate that God is a powerful and a holy and a righteous and just God, and so for that reason, he introduced sinners into his universe so that, by contrast, his justice, his holiness are established and fixed, and we know what God is like because, in this case, of the opposite. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of mercy, which he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he called, not only from the Jews, but also of the Gentiles? And so there's the opposite. So why did God make holy people? Well, because he wanted to make others of his his attributes known specifically here. His mercy. And so he allows sinners into his universe in order that he might demonstrate his holiness, justice, and righteousness. He elects people so that people can know of his grace and his mercy and his love. And we have to perhaps retool our thinking uh, away from the most important thing in the universe is that God would save as many people as possible because if God wanted to do that he would to say the most important thing in the universe that can be done is for us to know God and submit to him and have fellowship with him That's, that's, that's a greater goal that's a more primary goal that God has for his universe. Okay? And so God is sovereign, even in the entry of sin and sinners into the world. He also says he will not give his glory to another. He will not cede his attributes to another person, much less his omnipotence to failing men. 
Also, one wonders why this bestowal of freedom is arbitrarily selected as the greatest expression of love if God is capable of loving everyone directly into heaven. You know, the the idea of open theism and Arminianism, that God is primarily, above all things, love, and because he is love, he has to make people free. Okay, why? That's the question I have at that point. Why? Why is that the most important thing, that a, that is the most loving thing that a God could do? It, it, to me, it seems, you know, in my, in my feeble way of looking at, at, at things, it seems that it would be more loving for God to love everybody into heaven. But who am I? But the point is, it's an arbitrary thought that in order for God to be loving, he has to make men absolutely and completely free. And I'm not sure that follows. That doesn't seem to be the greatest expression of love uh, that could possibly occur. In fact, it's honestly, it's not an expression of love at all. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to set this one aside. It's not as though uh, God wasn't aware of what was going to happen, couldn't control what was going to happen. That's not the case at all. Some argue, secondly here, that sin is necessary to establish the greater good. Okay. Now, this theory actually has the advantage of having some biblical precedence, right? Joseph tells his brothers when they finally come to their senses there in Egypt, he says that they intended this for evil, but God had used that evil for a greater good, specifically the saving of many lives, right? So... They had been rather malevolent and vindictive in putting him in a pit and then pulling him out of that pit and selling him to somebody in slavery. That, that, was, that was wicked. And yet we find as an explanation that God actually supervised all of that for a greater good so that when famine came into the land that the world would be prepared through Joseph. Second example here, God used the evil apostasy of Israel as a means to extend salvation to the Gentiles. And we find in Romans 11, why is it, why is it that um, Israel floundered and actually fell away from God? And the answer is so that the fullness of the Gentiles might come in. And then the fullness of the Gentiles having come in, that the Jews would become jealous that the Gentiles had taken their place, in some sense, uh, as the centerpiece of what God is doing in the world, and would clamor to be let back in. And and what's the conclusion? And through all of this, through, through one of the greatest evils perpetrated in the human race, all Israel will be saved. Okay? And so we find evil then uh, results in greater good. Number C, letter C. A man born blind was rendered so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Okay, so this is not so much a sin, but an evil, right? Okay, if someone is born uh, born blind, it's a, that's a, it's a terrible tragedy. And we could call it in some sense an evil, that that, that child was born blind. And poor, poor fellow probably suffered immeasurably. Uh, not only because of his blindness, but apparently there's people all around him who think that the reason he's blind is because either he sinned or his parents sinned. And so they're they're looking at him with contempt. And so this little fellow grows up, you know, 
the object of probably of untold abuse, gets into his teen years, maybe as a young adult, and so the question now he's, he's presented before God, uh, uh, the, the second person of the Trinity, and, and the question is asked, okay, which one sinned? Was it his parents or him? And Jesus says, neither one. The reason this man was born blind was so that he could bear testimony to my greatness and to my Messiahship. And with that introduction, boom, he sees. And and we find that this man who has suffered for two decades, perhaps, with blindness, is given a role in God's universe that is, that's, I'm sure that's really cool. <laughs> I'm the one who got to to showcase the Messiah uh, by a miracle done in me, <laughs> that that would be a, that would be a great function to have in God's universe. And in fact, we find that to be the case. So he was born blind; an evil was perpetrated, so that God would be glorified. So there there are several examples. And we probably could add more. Uh, so we have examples here of sin establishing a greater good. And I say this theory is helpful in explaining the existence of some sins, specific instantiations of evil in the world, but it doesn't explain the existence of all evil, because much evil occurs in the world that cannot with certainty be connected with any greater good. You know, there, there's, there's wanton evil upon evil upon evil that's taking places in dark corners of the world, and nothing good comes of it. Further, number two, this theory fails to pr prove that sin is necessary to the greater good. That is, that good, the great good could not be achieved some other way. Thirdly here, this theory is also susceptible to re reactionary views of God's evil. God successfully outmaneuvers evil, but there's no clear explanation why God decreed evil in the first place. So, uh, while this might explain certain sins... I don't think it can answer the problem of sin in a general sense. John Feinberg wrote, writes the book, The Many Faces of Evil, argues that God could not have created a utopia with humanity as we know it, with humanity's full gamut of freedom, desire, etc., but that it was not his intention to create such a utopia. So, uh, it was never God's intention to have a human utopia apart from God. Feinberg is able to come up with this conclusion by denying the best possible world argument that we've discussed in Systematic 1. Uh, I also find lacking his explanation of how humanity will, in fact, inhabit a utopian world later on. Okay, so one also wonders why God did not begin with this utopia in the first place. So, the idea is God never intended to make a world in which there was no sin. It wasn't in the best interest of mankind. Um, and so there's any number of possible worlds. God selected this one. It had sin in it. It's not the best possible word, world, uh, but it is a, a world that God intended. And, God, uh, and, and, and so it was never the intention of God to create a utopia um, for man, a finite group of people. But then the question then comes up, well then why is it that we will forever live in such a utopia uh, in, the, in the final day? And it seems to me that Feinberg simply seems to say that God was no un, under no obligation to prevent evil, 
so long as ours is a good world, which I think is unsatisfying. Bob Raymond comes up with a rather interesting theory in his systematic theology that sin was necessary so that the human race would not look to the first Adam as their savior. It's, it's actually an interesting, it's sort of a novel theory here. Unfortunately, it's a lot of speculation, but it's a novel idea. Okay, So if, in fact, Adam had passed the test and had, and, and had introduced then a, 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 a paradise on earth, and all those who were born to Adam and Eve and, and, and throughout all time were born perfect without sin, and it was a utopian world, we would all look to who as our savior? Adam. Okay, because he, 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 he passed the test. And that could never be. Uh, and so Adam has to fail in order that the second Adam might take all the glory. Okay. I say this theory is interesting, but really it's ultimately speculative. We really don't have anything in the scripture that actually says this is the way it was. Another another prospect here is that John Hick argues that sin is necessary for finite people to know the full extent of the mercy, grace, and love of God, and, on the other hand, the full extent of God's holiness, righteousness, and power. Sin, he opines, is necessary for the soul building of individual into a complete knowledge of and conformity to the divine image with all of its moral excellencies. Okay? He goes on to argue that God is obliged to affect universalism in order to make this actually succeed. But I don't think you have to accept this in order to uh, appreciate what Hick has done. Hick's theory finds biblical support in Romans 9, which we just read. If there was not sin in the universe, we would not know the opposite nearly so well. Okay, and you've all you've all done those you know those those uh, examples. You really don't know what white is until you see something that's not quite white, right? Or black, for that matter, right? You really don't you don't appreciate it. And so the idea is that we really could not go, know God for all that He was if we didn't see. It's opposite in the world. And so Romans 9 seems to suggest this, that God prepares objects of wrath to make his wrath, holiness, and righteousness known. He also then uh, creates things that are good in order, out of things that are bad, in order to manifest his grace and love and mercy, his goodness. Whether this theory explains the totality of the existence of evil, however, is unclear. At the end of the day, God gives us snippets of information here. We get reasons for specific sins that occur in God's universe, but his reasons for sin in general are never fully revealed. They're not discussed. We ultimately do not know why God allowed sin into the world. All we can say with certainty is that God decreed it, that it was right for him to do so, and that it was best that he did so. And to these truths, we need to submit in the absence of a more satisfying answer. So questions you have on that, I know it's a, it's a very difficult topic. We've 
tried to cover the problem of evil in a half hour here. Uh, but uh, questions that you might have, I'd, I'd be happy to entertain them here tonight. Yes. Sometimes I think people say, like, why does God allow evil? And they're talking about natural disasters, things like that. Right. Which that's sin, right? But it's a result of the fall. Right. But, like, what we're going through now, I would, I didn't think maybe God's bringing judgment on the earth so people turn towards Him. It's hard to know. Yeah, that's, that's one of the, that's one of the tensions that we never really know why certain evils happen. You know, right after 9-11, I had the opportunity to preach. And the, the sermon I preached was uh, from Luke, where uh, the Tower of Siloam fell, and 42 people perished. Uh, I, we don't really know the details, but apparently somebody was, they were building some sort of a tower, and in the building of it, it collapsed, 42 people died. And the, and the question is asked, oh, why is it that these people died? Uh, is it because of some... They're just terrible sinners. And Jesus says, don't think that they were any worse than you. Okay? So speculation as to why that, that building fell is, is something we really can't do. We don't know why those 42 people died. Just like we don't know why those 2,600 people died when you know the Twin Towers fell down. We can speculate all day long, but we just don't know. God doesn't tell us. And uh, and he doesn't say here. He just says it's not it's not because they were bad. He doesn't say why they died. It just says that it wasn't that reason. And so I think the point here is that we have to refrain from speculating unless we have some sort of clear reason given to us by God why it happened. I mean, we can say in general terms that this pandemic that's happening is in, in a general sense the result of sin. Right. There, there wouldn't be malevolent viruses had Adam never sinned. Uh, but it's not because of some specific sin that someone committed, probably. <laughs> it's hard to know. But, but the origin of the sin, we, we, don't, we don't know why God brought it into the universe and how it got here. And we may never know. Uh, but it's known to God, and we just have to rest confidently in that, in that assurance. Okay. Other thoughts? Okay. How how painful was this? <laughs> I think it worked very well. Okay. Well, good. I just keep seeing the top of Rich's head, so I think he's hiding. <laughs> well, I think he's in his pajamas or something. <laughs> I don't know if I like this that you can see me. <laughs> All I can see was top of your head. <laughs> That's his best part, right? <laughs> okay. Well, good. Well, thanks for coming and for uh, you know for experimenting with us here, and uh, we'll see you, Lord willing, next week.